Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. So, what are you working on, Angie Powers? I am working on a series of short videos for our school and also some client work. So, that's what I've been working on. Filmmaking. Yes. In professional contexts. In professional. In professional. <laughs> I guess it's all professional. But sure. anyway, commercial. Yes. All right. Any, uh, any brainstorming about your own project? Not at the moment. I'm um... listening to the birds chirp. Is that in the computer? No, that's our outside. Well, that's lovely. Isn't it? Yeah. All right. What, what am I working, working on? on? <laughs> well, I just sent the latest draft of my book off to my agent. Now, this is probably a week behind, so I'll probably be... Let's hope that's not happening again. Or I'm tortured. Yeah, I'm probably torturedly waiting. But anyway, she wrote me right back, and I was excited, and I'm excited. And it's Yay. just been a really rewarding process, but challenging, but rewarding. And continue to knock on wood for you. Yeah. So anyway, so that is, uh, so you know, now I'm just kind of, I'm thinking about like, you know, other stuff, but you know, also this is a big week. Now, again, this will come out like a after this stuff that I'm looking forward to is over, but we've got a big week ahead of us and then another week of vacation. So. Okay. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. So I'll be more in a fallow period. That sounds dirty. It's so not. Well, I guess it's got dirt. There's an implication there. Of dirt, dirt. Of dirt yes. yes. All right. So today's topic includes... Well, so we've talked about the step list in the past, which is this exercise where you write every single scene in your book or screenplay, um, and then you write why it's there, right? And we've talked about that mm. in previous episodes where we talk about structure and things. They may or may not end up in the show notes. <laughs> and so you and I were looking at the step list. So when, when basically what I did this week is I revised the first act of my novel and there was a lot of backstory that I had worked and reworked and come at from different angles. And all of a sudden, based on a note I got, I was like, I don't, I don't need a lot of it. And I cut like 50 pages of it. And in the process of figuring that out, I wrote the rewrote the step list for that first act. And I and then you and I were talking about what was being cut and why it was there. And you said something to me and kind of helped me think through this that I hadn't maybe had the full grip on up to this moment. So it feels like a really exciting piece of the structure, story structure puzzle. Mm -hmm story development that I want to kind of bring up and talk to you about more and see how much you've already been thinking about it or how you think about it. Okay. Okay. Sounds great. So, this is a mystery. Well, you mean my book or what, what I'm no, about to talk about? Discussing. So, well, okay. Well, this podcast is, hmm. Well, so, um, what it, so what it was is that I, you know, I was like, okay, well, I've kept certain scenes because they do have a really important function. Like they set up something that pays off in crucial moments later, uh, or they, um, 
yeah, that's really the biggest thing is that they set something up that mm-hmm. pays off later and you have to have that set up. Right. And so what you finally said to me after all these years, I don't know why you waited. <laughs> you know me, I like to hide the good stuff. <laughs> you said, let's see how you can move into the present of the story, those setups. Mm-hmm. So it's like, like you said, you actually said there's information that you may need, but you may not need it in the form of that backstory scene. Right, right. So that was like, kind of like a fireworks aha moment. That might be sad to say. I feel like the biggest aha <laughs> moments, like go go from like being aha to being like duh, like so fast. But at the same time, I think you need to have that. If it if it's aha and it stays with you and it doesn't become duh, then you haven't really integrated it. Right. So it's like a it's a payoff. Like mm-hmm. the reason this is an aha moment is because I've banged my head against this particular problem long enough that when the door opened, it was like, it felt very right significant. It wasn't just like, ding, I push the door, it opens, I walk through. I don't even think about that door ever again. But if you're banging your head against a wall for a long time and suddenly it's a door, boy, that's one hell of a door. Right. Right. So talk to me about this thing, about information, because that's almost seems like you've, like you, you distill. I mean, so is that what you're distilling in a step list, first of all? So you have the, the column that says, here's the, here's what happens. And it's, it's sort of the who's fighting who over what kind of thing, right? Obstacle. Obstacle. Uh, well, usually it's goal, obstacle, outcome. Okay. So that's the column A. Goal, obstacle, right. outcome. And, and again, to go to Pilar Alessandra, she has goal, action, complication. So it's like... Different ways to... Or goal, something like that, right? right? So, but the ideas are all the same. And she was the first person that I heard who had really made that concise. But what I did is I took that in relationship to the things that I had sort of learned at my program in mm-hmm. UCLA, which is where I learned of the, you know, the seven steps and where they talk about this particular kind of step outline. So what you're actually doing, like, I think it changes maybe by project in some ways. So you're, when you're doing your outline and you're thinking about a scene, and you're thinking about, okay, so your character has a scene or a, a goal at the beginning of the scene. Um, and that's, that goal is somehow thwarted, right? This traditional kind of setup. Mm-hmm. Um, there's information in that. There's logical coherence. There's emotional coherence. And there's also, like we talked about, the information, the expositional information that you're getting to your reader. Mm-hmm. Right? So... Mm-hmm. Even though we might write, this scene is here to demonstrate Barbara's long-lasting anger at Phil. Phil. I don't know why we always have like this, like really straight, like Barbara's long-lasting anger at Janet. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, you know, there's information that's there. One of the things that we talked about actually was sort of the iterative nature of the creator coming to an understanding of what's actually needed. Did you think Phil was a man? You meant Phyllis? Phil, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, go back. (laughs) Well, what you were saying is when you were talking about this before, the thing we were talking about was that 
you actually need to go through this process a few times, right? You have to iterate multiple times, otherwise known as revision. Yeah. Right. Every time I sit down to rethink it, I have to go back and be like, what's my step list? And, and it's usually changed. That's part of what's been revised, right? And your need as the author or creator of a particular project changes with each iteration. You come to understand the project differently. Right. So you have the opportunity, and that's why I said I think it depends on the project or where you are in the project, to develop a story. It's there to help you dig a little bit deeper than just, um, you know, I'm going to have this really cliched scene in the same location. We always have it with the same arguments. Um, or we often don't think, well, we might have a goal and, and, a, and a, a complication, an obstacle, you know, happen, mm -hmm. but we don't know why it's all so completely intuitive. Right. That, uh, and we tend to fall in love with those beautiful intuitive moments. And it's not that they can't be fantastic and wonderful. Or even that you can't dig out of them. The, the structure right. of the story, story. But more than anything, I think that sentence is a beat to reflect on what you're actually doing. Right. I think, you know, I just like the, this one scene, you know, where like that's from the backstory and I just, it's always been there because it sets up the ending. Uh -huh. And I've always just written like, well, it, you know, it sets up this X, Y, Z thing about the ending. And I have never asked myself, really is there another way to do that is there a better way to do that and especially is there some way in the present to do that and like of course there is but like that had never even been those hadn't even been questions i had asked myself mm -hmm. do you know what i mean so i almost i think that and what's funny is of course when something's significant in the backstory it does show up in the present and it wasn't that hard to find ways to push that issue in the present in a very and it becomes much more dramatic there's more tension in the present because it's got that tension and it's kind of just it's more of a setup than you know a flashback is could ever mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. right well right because the stakes are higher because they're closer right so i just i don't know that really blew my mind and i think you know you I think the reason you might have that duh experience is because you have heard this axiom about not having too much backstory. Mm -hmm. You hear about it all the time. And I, I find that as I become a better reader, as I become a better observer, the reasons we have these lame little axioms is actually because... Um, there's something else they're doing. We're looking at avoiding doing something and rather than rather than being proactively doing Right. Something. It's not actually avoid backstory. It's put the tension and the setups and the you know conflicts of your story into the present. Mm -hmm. I mean, and even if they did happen in the past, like all the things I cut, they still happened in right. the, my characters' lives such as they are. Like I, I didn't cut the fact of their happening. And every back you know backstory moment every flashback moment you have the opportunity to have it have consequences in the moment yeah right? so you can use dramatic irony to revisit a moment in your character's backstory but the meaning of that moment is very different 
when you're telling it from hindsight in a particular way, mm-hmm. I think of, um, I'm not thinking like a lot of times like thrillers will use this or, or, or kind of scary things where someone is going to go through something terrible and we come into their story in a state of flashback just before the terrible thing happens and we get a sense of impending doom. Can you... Well, like, um, you know, I feel like, and I can't think of a film off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm feeling like I've seen this thing happen where it's like something bad has happened to someone. Mm-hmm. And that impacts who they are and how they go through the world and all of that stuff. And I think for me, when I see a flashback, if I just see a flashback that explains why they're like that, I'm not as invested in it. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Um, you want to learn it. I you don't want it. the explanation. Right, right. And then if I care about a character and I know something terrible is going to happen to them or has happened to them, but now I step into that moment with them just before the decision they make mm-hmm. changes everything for the worse. Well, I mean, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Room and Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I don't know because I'm being alliterative. Yeah. But so in Room... You know, there's obviously this crazy backstory, right? Like, like there's, this isn't even a spoiler. It's like, because, you know, she's gotten kidnapped. She's been, you know, there for eight years or something like that. She's gone through things that are will reveal, well, that would be spoilers, right? But we already know. We know, like, almost right away that she's right. been kidnapped and that she's locked in the shed. And it's right. not- and then you go back to that moment when, when she goes to the van. Mm, later but way right. later probably way after later. probably in right. the second half of the book yeah i have to go back and look at it yeah but that's what i'm talking about thank you and in the movie maybe you don't even have that but you do you see her going to the van you get her you see her and i think he feigned uh being hurt or mm. needing help mm. and then abducted her mm. and so that scene when you know but you're saying like like in other words, starting with that scene could you know could be of interest, right? It's got a lot of drama to it, but having it come when we know the consequences so intently. And not just us. I mean, like think about this in room. The point of view is her son, right? And at what point does he come to understand her experience? Maybe after the books. <laughs> <laughs> No, he comes to understand it. Like, you right. know, she attempts suicide. I mean, there's this whole bunch of stuff that Spoiler she goes alert. through after they get out. And then just to say, like, in Rebecca, and again, it's like it's this traumatic thing has happened to Maxim de Winter mm. with him and whatever. So that's, he's not the narrator, right? But so it's like, it starts when they meet, when right. he, he, he and the narrator meet. But there's this heavy, heavy backstory and we get, you know, we get the gossip version of it from the, you know, her employer. And we, and then we get all these different people's views of Rebecca as she's going through her life with, as, as our nameless narrator is going through her life with Maxim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then we get the kind of the big finale and whatever. But, you know, that, so the backstory, there's a huge backstory. And again, very dramatic, but we don't That's know. That backstory is reveal. Mm-hmm. So you do, have and a that. lot of mystery and right. suspense. Well, anytime you solve who done it, that is right, right. Um, and the, I think what you're talking about is that information that drives your character's way of being in the world. We don't actually have to see it always in action, 
and we don't always have to know 100% exactly why they behave the way they behave. So Mm -hmm. I think that's what you were sort of talking about, was like this notion of moving maybe that kind of expository information that we feel like people need, but somehow incorporating it into the active forward through line. Because often it doesn't seem expository. It's it's a scene in the backstory that is, you know, dramatically demonstrating something that happened that's going to have a consequence later. So that feels very non-expository. But the information that matters about it actually could be could happen in a completely different way in a completely different dramatic way in the present of the story and even if we already even if as the writer you know that did happen to the character in the backstory you can be like okay well here we are five years later how is that person going to act so like when you know so our narrator nameless narrator meets maxim de winter they're on the drive and then he goes and he stands at the edge of this cliff and he's like so and she thinks he's gonna like throw himself off of it and it's and she like screams and you know and then he comes back and they drive and you know and um and it's this crazy heart-stopping moment right where like and she doesn't know until much later in the book what really what he was really thinking about and what had happened in his backstory there right so it wasn't like look this is a perfect opportunity for him to explain this thing, right? It actually right. just raised a question, but it was super dramatic. And I think that goes to this bigger question when we're talking about form. A lot of people right now are writing multi-perspective books. Right. And the difference when you have a single perspective, I think uh, two things were at play. One, we had a sort of system of power where certain voices were seen as being universal. Um <sighs> And maybe that kind of omniscient, we had a lot of omniscient, and then we moved to, like, sort of the personal, psychological, but in some ways, it it still had that sense of, like, the the God power, the single consciousness, right? um, you know, as access to the universal. Um, And, you know, especially in in the case of something like Rebecca and Room, you're withholding information, you're hiding information from your reader by having that very controlled point of view. Well, having this innocent this sort of innocent narrator who misunderstands. So, okay. Right. But the intention, whether you have a, an innocent mm. or an intentionally misleading narrator, mm. a tight first person point of view is, or close third, really limits the information that your reader gets. Right. And when you do a multiple point of view, I'm sort of curious because there's so many people doing multiple point of view at this point, my, you know, myself included. What does that model actually offer? What is the underlying assumption, right? What are we playing with? What are we exploring? And that ultimately when you go to write a book, I think so often we are so intuitive about it and I think we should be, but at some point we have to stop and say, why do I have this form, this form above any other? is the one I wanted to tell my story in. And it can't just be like, well, it felt right. It could start that way. We can go through several revisions that way. But ultimately, you have to be able to say, my multiple point of view, my two point of view, my single point of view, my omniscient point of view, all of those have a particular function. And here's why I'm using them. Right. I do. I think it would be a great podcast topic, actually, the multiple point of view thing, because I've sort of been thinking, oh, it's a lot about television and we're kind of, you know, we're trained to do that. But now I'm thinking 
this is a really interesting way into it. You know, it's kind of moving from the God point of view to the like universal individual to like the tension of the sort of, it's the blind man and the elephant or whatever. Right. So we're moving into a tension of, uh, you know, multiple points of view and none of them reveals the truth. Right. But it is time for steal this amateur poets borrow professional poets steal. Did you come across this week that you would like to take and make your own? Well, I have been reading a book called Hyperfocused, which is fantastic because that's one of the challenges I face uh, every day. If I have a good, good productive day, like I will hit my hyperfocus and I'm cranky if you try to make me do something other than what I'm focused on. Really? And um, <laughs> I noticed. It's interesting because, you know, I think there's a lot of conversation about, like, turn off your phone or do this and that. The truth is the phone is not the only thing that invades our uh, attention. And so he's really talking about the different things that invade our intention and, and how we build up a, a focused muscle. So, so it's a book that's trying to teach people how to do what you fall into on a good day. Right. And the other point is to also be intentional in your choice of focus and intentional in your choice of unfocus. That is, I think very often people are like, yes, I just need to focus all the time. But to be proactively choosing to step away from uh, something right. is something that I think is often hard to do when you're by yourself because you feel like you have so much that you're not focusing on at any one time. So Yeah. Well, cool. So what are you stealing? So what I'm actually stealing from that is trying just this week this is this week's experiment, to pay attention to just my thoughts. Like, it's funny because he doesn't phrase it within a meditative thing, but of course it is very meditative. But in work, one of the other things that distracts us are our other obligations. So, uh, so this week my goal is to keep a little pad here on my desk, and as I'm working, just make notes of the things that I am either pulled off track by, so for me it might be like, oh, I'm going to go research, and this happened to me today, macros for Premiere Pro and setting up those. And <laughs> then I ended up just like way the heck away from that in... Macrame. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, just been very far away from where I started. Right. And so for me to notice like, oh, it took me three minutes, A, to even notice I wasn't where I was supposed to be, and B, I spent 40 minutes, you know, researching how to um, automate removing ums from podcasts. Um, hum. Which I haven't found mm, out. Yeah, so we've noticed. <laughs> um, well, fabulous. Uh, I, you know, I just read Lisa Unger's under my skin, which is like a, you know, suspense, psychological suspense. And one of the things that, you know, just to, to tie back to what we were talking about in this podcast episode, she does a lot of backstory interwoven throughout it, but there's like a midpoint kind of new information piece as there would be. And we get a piece of the backstory that is like so huge and significant. And yet, and that she actually knows all along there are things she doesn't remember throughout the book but this is not actually one of those things it's just not what she's focused on and because she 
authentically isn't focused on it because she's authentically obsessed with these other kinds of memories. Um, I gave it to her. You know, I didn't feel like, oh, this is the author being heavy handed or the narrator being coy. I felt like, oh, she's being, oh, her eyes are being open to this other aspect of her life and her relationship. And it's bringing out, <laughs> man, it's moved by that. Uh, it's bringing out another piece of the backstory. And I just, and so that kind of made me again feel excited about the idea of moving backstory back into the back of the book okay back of the book if it's if it's gonna come out like like you said make it come out when it really hits us mm. you know when we really understand the consequences of it and these characters and then it's like oh god oh and it hit me really it did hit me hard and I just want to say, like, the amount of revision that happens is necessary. Anybody who's avoiding revision is avoiding the education each revision gives you. Yeah. There's just stuff you can't know until you've completed an iteration. I will say I heard a great interview with Rachel Howard on the Grotto Pod, and we'll put a link to that. Um, our buddies over at the Grotto Pod. It was just, and she talks about an article that she read about theme, which I've actually found and read like half of. But um, who's that good? And well, no, I just I'm just like I heard about it today, and I've been a little busy. But um, anyway, it um, but she she wrote she had wrote worked on a book for seven or eight years, and then put it aside and wrote a book in eight months. And what she said she felt the difference was is that she really understood the theme. Yeah, she really understood the driving question of the book, and that made it. Even though she actually didn't know the ending, she, yeah. yeah, she she kind of. Uh, but she anyway. So we have to wrap up. But um, but it was just it was inspiring because it's what we teach, right? <laughs> I always like that what we teach to be reinforced. I like that too. Yeah. So um, so go write your tushies off, people, or take a break, or do whatever you need. To say until next week. Oh. Go write your tushies off. Not oh. just randomly. You you and your branding. Yeah. I'm creative. <laughs>